This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I was stunned when I realized earlier this week that we were coming up to Friday, and Friday is the 30th anniversary of Wayne Gretzky passing to Mario Lemieux here at Cops Coliseum, then, then Cops Coliseum, to score the winning goal in the 1987 Canada Cup, which is still considered not only one of the biggest goals in Canadian hockey history, up there with Paul Henderson in 72 and Sidney Crosby in 2010, but one of the biggest series, one of the most important series in hockey history. And a lot of people listening, I have no doubt, a lot of people listening, because I hear from people all the time, were in the arena. Based on what I've heard, there were 472,000 people in the arena that night that hold 17,000. But anyway, 30 years ago this week, later uh, next month, there is a dinner that is going to be held here in Hamilton with Wayne Gretzky and a number of guys I understand from that team. They're getting together. It's kind of a bit of a reunion. But I thought today, with tomorrow being the anniversary, we would chat a little bit about this series because it's one of those things. There's a lot of games that come and go and disappear and they're irrelevant. This was not one of them. That series, that night particularly, September 15, 1987, my next guest was the color commentator calling the game, well, color commentating the game across the country to everybody watching. Uh, His name is Ron Roosh. He is a longtime sports television play-by-play, done everything in the business, and he joins me now. Ron, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, Nice to talk to you, Scott. How in the world back then did you land that gig? Because there had to have been a lot of people who wanted that job. Well, uh, there was a CTV job, first of all, and and, uh, and uh, a couple of years before the, the, that event, uh, CTV had acquired the rights for NHL games on Friday nights. I think O'Keefe Breweries was right. involved, and uh, so there was a. And I had been doing a lot of play-by-play. I broadcast. I did the play-by-play of the '84 Canada Cup and the uh, '70, uh, the '76 uh, was it? I'm trying. To yep. Get, yep. Uh, anyway, I'd end some Olympic games for them in hockey and everything else. So I was kind of in the running for the play-by-play, and uh, Dan Kelly uh, made himself available. And uh, you know, you're not, not going to beat out Dan Kelly. So, but then Johnny Esau, who was the head of CTV Sports, uh, uh, said, "Look, uh, can you do uh, color?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I can do color. I've been around hockey a long time." And he says, "What?" Well, so he tried me out at it, and he, he said, "You're my color man." So you know. In those days, Dick Urban, of course, who was my boss at the CTV station here in Montreal, had been doing it for years with uh, Danny Gallivan, so it wasn't sort of unknown that a, a broadcaster would wind up as a color commentator. So anyway, I was doing those games, and it was just kind of the evolution. Uh, when they got the Canada Cup, uh, I worked with Dan on that as well. Do you recall uh, before the tournament started that you thought this was going to be one of the all-time great tournaments, or do these things kind of have to grow on you and show themselves to be what you think it might be? Well, uh, you have to realize that one of the best games, and I did the play-by-play of that game, was the semifinal of the 84 Canada Cup, which was the overtime game when Mike Bossy deflected the Paul Coffey shot uh, against the uh, Soviets. And that was one of the great games. But I had known for years, because I lived in Europe for about 10 years in the 60s, I had known for years that the uh, Soviets were coming on and that their hockey was uh, was something to be reckoned with. Uh, people in North America kind of poo-pooed me a little bit hmm. until 1972 when we had that great series, uh, with, you know, the uh, so-called Summit Series. 
but uh, you know, no, I I I thought that, uh, especially that that particular team, because uh, the Rush, the Soviets had uh, you know the green unit, and uh, they had some great players. So you know, there was no uh, there was no doubt in my mind this had the potential to be a great series. You, uh, just by what you're describing, and we all know this, you've been around hockey for a long time, a lot longer than I have, a lot longer than most of us have. Yeah, and a lot longer, maybe I should be discussing. <laughs> <laughs> but when you talk about the 76 Canada Cup, and a lot of people say that the 1976 Canada Cup, because I believe there were 20 Hall of Famers on that team that played for Canada, was the best team ever assembled. But could there be an argument or not? that the 1980 team, because the, the, the level of the top end of the talent for Canada with Lemieux and with Gretzky was so high, could there be an argument that it was a lineup that would have competed with the 76 team, or are they two different things? Uh, I think they're a little different. I, I wasn't that impressed with Canada's defense in the, 70, the 87 series. Uh, the, the, I thought it could have been better. Uh, you know, they had dad, so Raymond Bork was on it. Uh, but, you know, and I looked at that, and, you know, he got a bunch of 6-5 hockey games in that final. You know, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of defense playing. But up front, oh, you can't, you can't, I can't imagine any team ever being put together that uh, would match that one. No, you had guys playing on the fourth line that were first-line guys on their team. And the, the amazing part was, and maybe credit to Mike Keenan, who was coaching, or maybe something else, they all seemed willing to play those roles. They seemed reasonably happy to play those roles. Well, yeah, I think I think when you get on that level, you, you, you take what you can get. I mean, Mark Gartner, uh, goodness, he was, he was kind of a third, fourth-line guy on that team. And uh, here's a guy who, uh, you know, 500-goal scorer and everything else. You know, that was just... Uh, you know, you, you you look at it and you say, you, you know, how can how could I possibly complain about whatever role was given me in that in that series? Well, especially because also there were some real stars that had been cut, and there was some unhappiness from some of those stars who had been cut leading into the tournament. Well, yeah, I, you know, yeah, you're right, exactly. There's some of some of those guys uh, that uh, that didn't make it. You know, or Al McGinnis didn't make that team. You said, geez, how how could he not be part <laughs> of that that team? Uh, Howard. Uh, uh, Eiserman tried out for that team. Muller tried out for that team. Uh, Scott Stevens uh, was cut late. Cam Neely, Patrick Waugh didn't make that team. Wendell Clark didn't make that team. Yeah, I remember around here, because of course we're in the shadow of Toronto and, the, and Leaf coverage, I remember a lot of people were really miffed back then that Wendell Clark hadn't made it. Yeah. Turned out okay, but um, we do remember though, Ron, we were talking with Ron Roosh, from, uh, who, who was the color commentator for the Canada Cup, especially the last few games here in Hamilton. We remember obviously what happened at the end. It's a little foggier at the beginning because you sort of forget that as time goes by. But one of the dominant storylines that was coming into this tournament was that Mario Lemieux was a really talented hockey player. Obviously, he'd put up millions of points in junior. He was the guy who was saving the Pittsburgh Penguins. But he was kind of lazy and he was kind of laissez-faire and he didn't really care about winning and all that kind of stuff. And the the storyline was that playing with Wayne Gretzky really changed him and turned him into the Mario Lemieux. Did you buy that? Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I, I watched Mario through the early parts of his career, and he was great, you know, but he could have been better. And uh, the, the sense I got was playing with Gretzky all of a sudden to, uh, figured out that, uh, you know, there's a work ethic involved in being a superstar. And, uh, and I think in that series, he kind of uh, sort of surfaced. There were a couple of players that I thought really uh, – came on in that series. Uh, Mario was one of them. Larry Murphy, who was another guy who I thought uh, was kind of coasting in his NHL career and really came into his own in that series. 
Uh, Dale Howarchuk uh, was another one that kind of surprised me in that series. You know, it's a, yeah, it's, it's something like that. Some sometimes just brings out the best, and you, and you learn a little bit about yourself. And I think in the case of Mario, he learned about himself, and he also learned from Gretzky. Interesting, ironic that you mentioned four of the five guys on the ice for the final shift <laughs> for that goal: Howard, Chuck, and Murphy, and Lemieux, and Gretzky. Well, it's interesting. The faceoff was in the uh, in the uh, Canada end. And uh, usually in a face-off like that, they'd have Messier out there, and Messier had to come off the ice because he was just completing a shift. So he wound up putting Howardchuk on for the draw. So the face-off in the Canadian end had three centers, uh, Howardchuk, Lemieux, and Gretzky out there. And, I, I, you know, Keenan was simply, uh, Mike Keenan, the coach, was simply making sure that if somebody got tossed out, he'd have another centerman there. As it was, Gretzky tied up the... Uh, I think it was Beckoff uh, tied him up on the uh, on the faceoff. Uh, actually, Howardchuk never touched the puck, but uh, 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 Mario leaned in and poked the puck over to Gretzky, and that started that breakout. It was an unbelievable breakout, and uh, led to the goal. We all and we all remember that goal. We've seen it a million times. I don't know. We've seen Paul Henderson more. Uh, but I bet we've seen this one even more than Sidney Crosby's goal. And I know we've got a few years head start on it, but it has it has really stood the test of time, this this well, goal in this yeah. series. Well, all you have to do is say Gretzky to Lemieux. Yes. Everybody knows what you're talking about. There was there. a book by that name, written by that name, about the series, Gretzky to Lemieux. That's what this series became, was Gretzky to Lemieux. And it was even in Game 2, that was the result as well. Yeah, well, yeah, in Game 2, uh, the last three goals in that game, including the double overtime goal, was Gretzky to Lemieux. <laughs> all three goals. Uh, the, the one that put them ahead... Uh, then they got tied up again, and then the winning goal. So, uh, you know, it's a, the last four important goals scored for Canada was Gretzky to Lemieux. You do wonder, because the level of competition in that series and the level of play was so high, you do wonder if somehow in the pre-salary cap days, if Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux could have ever ended up on the same NHL team, how many points they each would have got? Because, it, I mean, it was just, you're playing at this level and putting on a clinic. You go against some fourth-line grinders from the NHL, they would have scored every shift. Well, yeah, the uh, you know, but that was the team also had Me- uh, the Edmonton team had Messier on yep. it, you know. Yeah, so you know, I look at that Edmonton. I actually I was talking to Don Jackson. I was in Munich, Germany, uh, just last month, and Don Jackson, who was a defenseman with that Edmonton team, uh, I was talking to him about that team, and he, you know, he was a he, he played with uh, with the doctor there, uh, um, Randy Gregg. Yeah, Randy Gregg. They were the only two defensemen on that team. The rest of them all played up, you know. <laughs> And then Jackson was saying, yeah, can you imagine a goaltender who had a, a goals against average of almost four, uh, like Grant Fuhr did, and, and still makes the Hall of Fame? <laughs> he was Most of the time he was back there alone. Yeah, no, he, he probably had more breakaways that he had to stop than any other goalie in NHL history, yeah, probably. Yeah. Ron, one of the interesting things, though, and again, I go back to that moment, because we can all picture the gretzky Delmu play. We can, we can visualize it clearly. It's, it, as I say, it has held up. Why? Why did that series, why is that moment still considered such a, a, a seminal moment for Canadian hockey? What is it about that that made it so special? Well, it was, it was the goal, first of all, with one, what, 126, I think, yep, remaining in the correct. game. Uh, the, the goal itself. But you had to realize that that game, Canada was down 3 nothing in the first period. Uh, you know, the whole game was a, was a spectacle, you know. They were down uh, 3 nothing. They came back and scored uh, uh, a couple of goals, and then there was a late goal in that first period that made it 4-2. to two. So this was an uphill climb for Canada all the way, you know, right to, right to the bitter end. And, you know, even after 
I, I've always wondered about Tikhonov. Uh, even after that goal was scored, he was so upset at uh, Igor Kravchuk, the defenseman who got caught, uh, that he's lecturing him on the bench. And there's a minute 26 remaining in the game. And, you know, you'd think he'd put the green unit out. He didn't. He put his fourth line out. And they've, they've got to tie the You know, they've got to retie the game. So, you know, <laughs> the. The, the the coach of the, the Soviet team had completely lost it. He, he, he was out of his mind after giving up that goal and, and just stopped coaching. And Canada almost, if you watch right after that, you'll recall this, Canada almost scored right off the subsequent face-off. Yeah. Which I wonder, and we'll never know this, I wonder if that would have in any way diminished the Gretzky to Lemieux goal if the game had ended 7-5 instead of 6-5. No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, it... Uh, you know, it would have been meaningless in the, in the uh, historically. Uh, you know, the, thing, the interesting thing is Russia never pulled its goaltender either. Mm. Do you, do you, Ron? Do you? Because a lot of people say this, and we throw it around, and I think we believe it. But do you consider this one of the most important or more important series, hockey series that's ever been played? Is it up there? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, everybody talks about uh, yeah, the, internationally, certainly. Uh, Everybody talks about the uh, New Year's Eve game here in Montreal, the three-three tie, uh, the the Super Series, the uh, uh, you know. But this because of the three games, all six-five. First game decided in overtime. Uh, second game decided in double overtime, and then uh, this one. I mean, it can't you can't get better than that. And hockey, you know, it's changed so much since then. You know, six-five games are just unheard of in playoff hockey now, but. Uh, you know, it was such wide open, entertaining hockey as well. So, you know, and certainly as a broadcaster, just unbelievably uh, fun to broadcast. Well, that's why you needed two play-by-play guys up there, just so you could catch your breath a little bit. When Dan was about to pass out, you could jump in for a few minutes. <laughs> exactly. Why, though, and you talk about it was so wide open, and yet, you know what, over the last few days, because I've been working on a story for the paper, I've been work at there... You watch the the games, you watch the final game. This was before the NHL folks had really cracked down on the hooking and the clutching and grabbing and the slashing. There was a lot of that stuff going on, and yet it still seemed so much more wide open. It still seemed like there was so much more room on the ice. Why was it? What? Why was the hockey so good? Well, uh, you know, we didn't have things like the trap in, in those days, you know. We didn't have the, the, the type of... Uh, the coaches own the game now. It's it's un, in a way it's unfortunate. Uh, uh, you know, the, the hockey is faster. It's uh, you know, and it's more skilled. I think than it is it was in those days, but but it's not as exciting as it was in those days. You know, I mean, now a, a twenty goal scorer is worth five million dollars a year. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, in those days, uh, you know, a, a fifty goal scorer. There were a ton of them in the league, and. Gretzky was scoring 90, you know, so... And, and, you know, what, yeah, what would a 90-goal score be worth today? Uh, you'll never find them. You're, tr- you're, you're right. the way the game is played today. It's just, uh, as I say, the, the coaches have taken over now, and until they find a way to... Uh, to uh, loosen up the game a little bit, uh, it's always uh, games are going to be decided by two one. But Tikhanov certainly had a structured system that he had in play, and I'm wondering when you look at Mike Keenan, was it a genius of Mike Keenan that he didn't seem to put in a really rigid system, or was it just the reality that with just days to practice, there was no reason and no possible way to do that? Well, I had to realize that the uh, the Soviet team was in a, was together eleven months of the year, exactly, and he he he'd thrown a team together. Uh, Keenan had in uh, just a couple of weeks before the tournament uh, started here in Montreal, as a matter of fact. But uh, 
uh, Keenan, uh, you got to realize that Keenan had to uh, fend off a rebellion. The players uh, uh, were, were really getting angry at him and wanted him re- replaced halfway through the tournament because he was just uh, the iron rule was just a little too much, you know. And uh, these guys aren't getting paid, so you know they, they were. Uh, you know, they, you know, he was treating their wives badly and you know, everything else. It was just, yeah, and that's the last thing you do is treat the wives badly. And uh, he, uh, you know, so they finally had to settle that out uh, just as I think the final series was going on, or be about to start. So Keenan, uh, you know, well, his nickname was Hitler. You know exactly what, you know. It was, uh, you know, he was really, really tough on the guys. So if you believe then that had he had three weeks or four weeks to prepare as opposed to a week or a week and a half, that there would have been a much more rigid system put in place? Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know, really. Or does he look I, at the know, guys he had? and so much skill. There. Yeah. I mean, these guys, these guys, you know, players of that level, I mean, they adapt very quickly and everything else. Everything, everything I think, every time that I've seen these tournaments uh the conditioning is always the problem uh you know the 70 uh, the 72 series i mean canada just wasn't in shape to deal with the with the russian or soviet national team uh and it took them uh, until they finally got to russia for them to be in shape and uh, you know and when you're playing those soviet teams which are together all year long basically uh, you you know, you had to you had the problem of uh, you know of just trying to trying to keep up with them. Ron, it's interesting though because they Canada didn't really have a system. They had talent, and they let them play. And as you say, they adapted and adjusted and worked with each other, and it was beautiful hockey. And I'm wondering if you're an NHL coach today, and I know you're never going to have the lineup that Mike Keenan had for the Canada Cup. But if you had a bunch of talented guys. What would happen if you said, you know what, we're going to take a test drive on this one. We're not going to put in a system for the next month. Let's see what happens. Could it work in hockey today? No, I don't think so. And again, you know, the, the, because every every coach now has a system and it's, you know, here in Montreal, we've had uh, Claude Julien in here. He has a system. He came in halfway through his, the season to replace a system that was in before, slightly different, but all of it is trap. All of it is uh, clog up the, the center ice. Uh, as soon as you get over the line, used to be a guy could, a centerman could come over the line and, and set up and look to make a play. Now he, he hits the line, there's three guys on him. You know, it's, it's, the, it, and, you know, the game, the game is played at such a, a pace today as compared with, say, even 30 years ago. Uh, you know, he, you know, we, we've had guys come up from the, the, the minor leagues here. Well, from Hamilton a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and uh, you know, I, I say to the coach, "Well, what's the problem with this guy? How come he's not making it? He's doing really well in Hamilton." And he says, "Well, he's not making his decisions quickly enough, and quickly enough means you have to have your decision made even before you get the puck." <laughs> You're right. In those days, uh, you know, you had the time. You had that that split second that doesn't exist anymore. You are absolutely right. Hey, last thing, we only have a minute or so left here, and I really appreciate all the time today. Uh, this was, I mean, obviously it wrapped up on September 15. This was a late summer, early autumn event. It was before the hockey season. And yet, if I can think back, I mean, certainly by the end of the thing, everybody was into it. But I think everybody in Canada or every hockey fan had bought into this from the start. It seemed like this was a an event that had people's attention and their 
emotional investment right from the beginning. And yet then last, last year we have the world cup of hockey and it seemed like it was just, it was missing any of that stuff. What's happened? Is it, is it the Olympics or nothing now? Have the Olympics become yeah, you, the you, only you, event? You hit it dead on the Olympics. The Olympics is, is important. You got to realize that the Canada cups were all played here. It, it, it's not, it's not truly an international tournament. It's, it's played in Canada and the United States. Uh, you know, if they were playing it on the big ice surface in uh, Cologne, Germany, or Berlin, or wherever overseas, uh, you know, every every second time or something, there would be a truly international tournament. The Olympics, that's uh, a whole different deal. The gold medal, the whole thing, you know, the you know, it's just it's, it's overwhelmed it's, everything it's else. Superseded. I think yeah. the NHL has missed the boat. I think that they. They 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 thought that the World Cup would uh, would catch everybody's attention, and it just it basically hasn't. Ron, um, I got to let you go, but you know one of the things I got to tell you when I watched the uh, the game again today online, and then you and Dan doing it, full applause for full applause to you because when Mario scored that goal, I got to think for a color commentator, the first thing you want to do is jump in and start yapping. And you and he sat there and were quiet and let that thing play out and let people appreciate it. That is the hardest thing for people with the headphones on to do. And, and I thought well, even 30 years later, it stood out as being, that was, that was the right way to do it. Well, uh, you know, uh, my attitude, uh, actually I learned this from Danny Gallivan. He says, sometimes the, the, the crowd can do better than any word you can <laughs> say. And, uh, and in that instance, there, there was nothing to say. You know, the puck's in the net, and everybody's going crazy. And uh, what, you know, when when I finally when I finally got the replay, I had, you know you have to talk about it. But until then, let's let people enjoy the moment. Ron Roosh, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. All right, thanks, Scott. That is, uh, as I say, Ron Roosh, who did the color commentary for the '87 Canada Cup, the final game, 30 years ago tomorrow. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy who is not new, but he is talking tonight about someone who could be new, just to keep this all in one big, long, elongated theme that has probably worn out its welcome long before now. Rick Zamperin, the not new uh, assistant brand, assistant program manager, uh, sports director, fill-in talk show host. What, you do everything around here, uh, including doing radio interviews after doing four hours of news already today. So thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, Rick Zamperin, by the way, uh, we do believe that he does have a microphone strapped to him, even when he's in bed, just in case someone calls him and goes, Rick, we need news. He goes, okay, I'll, he just starts talking. I, I need the feedback for my My Pillow commercial. So the microphone while I'm sleeping uh, does a lot of work. Uh, well, yes, the My Pillow. Yes, that's correct. Uh, you know, I hmm. see, I would think that you would put your head on that pillow and you would be out like a light. Nobody could wake you to do news. That's what happens, but I think I, I still talk in my sleep. <laughs> well, one day we'll have your wife on and, uh, and, and check for those who really care about these kind of things. I'm sure she has stories to tell. Yes, between Ben's love life and your sleep talking, we'll, uh, we're going to make sure there's not a person left listening to this radio station by the end of the night. There you go. Uh, Rick Zamprin, there is all kinds of talk. The, the Ticats play tomorrow night. They play Saskatchewan. Uh, they appear to have probably caught another lucky break. We were talking about this last night or the night before that two games in a row they have benefited from the fact that the other team's field goal kickers have turned into absolute poop. But mm-hmm. they now get a lucky break because Kevin Glenn it looks like he's not going to play and Saskatchewan's going to have to go with their backup. However, that's not the news. The news all day and for days now and seemingly picking up steam is that the Ticats may be 
thinking, looking, kicking the tires again at Johnny Manziel to come in and be a Hamilton Ticat. For those who don't know, for the four people who don't know, who haven't heard this name, explain the Johnny Manziel thing slash obsession. Well, Johnny Manziel is a highly touted quarterback uh, out of Texas A&M who was uh, the first freshman to win the Heisman Trophy, which is the basically the MVP of U.S. college and university football. Uh, a very talented uh, uh, football player who had some amazing plays and led his team to some, some pretty high heights. Uh, drafted uh, in the National Football League by the Cleveland Browns. Who, in the first uh, round. Yeah, in the first round, who, who are still still looking for a starting quarterback. <laughs> and hoping still looking for a lot of things. That next guy. Yeah, exactly. And uh, after a, a very brief NFL career, which ended not only in you know some humiliating losses for the Browns and Manziel, uh, he has gone through uh, numerous uh, you know instances in which he's been in trouble with the law, whether it's uh, you know uh, assaulting his girlfriend or wild parties or spending lavishly at these wild parties, or getting caught in places that he shouldn't be. He is uh, uh, the bad boy of football right now. Uh, most bad boys of football, uh, at least when you think of. Uh, you know, Terrell Owens or even Odell Beckham Jr., who I don't really consider a bad boy, but I think some people kind of put him in that place. You know, those types of guys are uh, not only talented, but ultra successful. They have, you know, won awards. They have been, you know, at the top of their uh, positions in terms of uh, not only uh, fandom, but, uh, you know, from accolades from around the league. The, the difference here is that Johnny Manziel uh, quickly flamed out of the National Football League. So long story short, uh, many years ago, the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and this is still when Johnny Football, his nickname, was at Texas A&M, put Manziel on their neg list or their negotiation list, which, which gives them exclusive negotiating rights um, for Manziel for the basically foreseeable future. What happened earlier this week, and this is uh, something that is in the CBA, is that a person on any neg list with any team can activate what is called a 10-day window. So if that player really wants to play in the CFL or just wants to play football, period, uh, they will say, hey, uh, Ticats or hey, BC Lions or hey, Argos, uh, you know, I'm activating the 10-day window. Uh, let's get a deal done. So there's two things, or actually there's a variety of things that can happen. Number one is <clears throat> the team can say, okay, let's let's sign them up. And uh, yeah, that individual, in this case, Johnny Manziel, would be a member of the Ticats. They could say, you know what, uh, we're not interested, uh, we're going to let you go, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, good luck. Or they could also trade his negotiation rights to another CFL team. So Hamilton can call Toronto and say, hey, Argos, we know you're struggling in that uh, mighty market of Toronto behind, uh, you know, the Leafs, Blue Jays, and TFC, and all the other things that you can do in Toronto. Ultimate uh, Frisbee. Want... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do, you, do, you want, do you want Johnny Manziel? So they could trade him, they can release him, or they can sign him the other uh, the other um uh, opportunity or window in this window that they have is they can say um, um we're going to offer you a contract for it could be the league minimum or just higher whatever they do all they have to do is offer them a contract and that 10-day window now becomes a one-year window so it's 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 uh, lengthened by uh, obviously a considerable amount of time to give the team a little more time to negotiate a deal because you might, you know, Manziel's camp might activate this 10-day window, but it might take, I don't know, two weeks to negotiate a deal. You know, the back and forth of a pro sports that how, uh, you know, it happens from time to time that it, it you know, extends 
for a lengthy period of time. Or the risk is that he really wants to play and says that you offer him the minimum deal and he goes, okay, and now well, you've got a quarterback signed. It, unlikely, I grant you, unlikely that he's going to come in for the league minimum, I would think, but that's a possibility. Yeah, and you know what I made mention in my blog today is, you know, all the tie cats really have to do because they hold all the leverage. They hold his negotiating rights across the Canadian Football League. So all they really have to do is say, okay, you, you've activated this window. We're going to offer you the league minimum. It's going to be a one plus one, which is a one year deal with a team option. It is the the bare minimum that that any team in the CFL can do with any player. Uh, and they say, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you know, you can you can take it or you can leave it, but you're going to leave it for up to a year because we now have that 10 day window expanded to a one year window. So that's basically the nuts and bolts on how this situation can work. And if it's the one plus one, just so people know, the one, the first one, so the guaranteed contract is that just for the remainder of this year? That would be, a, yeah, probably you know, a prorated contract just for this year. So, so the one plus one is really a half plus a one. Exactly, yeah. So this would be a prorated year one, which would be, you know, whatever uh, the remaining eight games are of the season, uh, divided by 53,000, which is the league minimum. That's, that's basically what he would get for this year. So, first of all, there's a lot of things to talk about here because he is a real... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good way, and you've done an excellent job describing it, but Johnny Menzel is, I think, the best word, and I hate it because it's so cliche, but he is truly the definition of a polarizing figure. There are those who believe that Johnny Menzel would come to the Canadian Football League, and based on the style of play, which is scrambling and improvising and not standing in the pocket and throwing, he's all over the place, that he would be the next Doug Flutie. And there are others who say he would come up here and, first of all, he's not in shape, apparently. And second of all, he brings baggage. And third, you know, that style of play kind of went out in the early 90s from the CFL and probably wouldn't work anymore. Which way do you look? Is this guy the next great quarterback or is this thing so blown out of proportion and he would come here and just flame out again? Well, you know what? The the one example that I can point to in terms of talent in terms of playing style uh, was another player who was also on a CFL negotiation list, and that was Tim Tebow, who was on the Montreal Alouettes negotiation list. Now, two guys who, in terms of attitude and history, uh, are are polar opposites. You know, Tim Tebow is a a God-loving, God-fearing, you know, uh, guy who is now out of football and and trying his hand at uh, professional baseball but a guy who really could do no wrong with the fans. I mean, people absolutely loved him as uh, a person because he's always smiling, always saying the right things, always putting his team before himself. On the field, though, you know, people hated him because he was not a good football player at the pro level. Fantastic in NCAA and college ball, but when he took that next step, he could not get the job done. Johnny Manziel, I liken him to Tim Tebow. Might be a little more talented, have a little more arm strength, but... The fact of the matter is he scrambles around, he makes sensational plays or or makes plays that shouldn't be there. But in an 18-game CFL system uh, season, in a, in a sport that is so structured, way more so than hockey and basketball and, and maybe even baseball at times, but, I mean, you have basically uh, five to seven seconds to make a play. Uh, and in a sport that is known as organized chaos, but is so finely tuned to, uh, you know, a, a three or five or seven step drop, 
you know, hit your guys at the right moment, uh, you know, knowing how to read the defense and, uh, you know, go through your progression. If one receiver is covered, you got to go to the next guy. And then, uh, you know, your, your hot read is your kind of, uh, you know, first option. And then, and then you have your last-ditch effort. You know, can he do that, not only in a one-game scenario, but can he do that over 18 games? And there's where I have my doubts. Yeah, we saw it in college. But the difference between college ball and pro is really night and day. Forget about the game situation itself, but the preparation, the practice, oh, yeah. the game planning. I mean, it is it is completely different. So, How many guys come up here, Rick, that think, and I mean, they would never admit this, but they come up from the States, from Division One NCAA, or even from being cut from an NFL camp, and they arrive in the CFL and say, I'm going to kill this league. This is going to yeah. be easy. It's the Canadian Football League. And halfway into the season, not only are they not impact players, but they're saying, wait, this is, you know what, the guys who are up here, are pretty darn good athletes. And that's why I, you know, to your point, I'm not, I am not one of those who is convinced that Johnny Menzel steps on the field and succeeds. I think, I think he, I'm much more likely to believe he does not succeed than succeeds up here, especially in the short term. Uh, yeah, I agree. And you know what? Back to your original question. I mean, there are, just look at the CFL transactions wire. I think they still have it on the website. You go to cfl.ca, click on transactions. There are, it is a litany of names that come up here, try out, maybe latch on with a team for a half a season or a few games or a couple of seasons, and then they just they, they can't perform at the level that they did in college. We saw in a guy even who was in the NFL, in Brian Timms, recently with the Hamilton Tiger Cats, a guy who was perhaps, as I said earlier in the week, one of the most hyped guys, hyped players in a Ticats uniform coming into this 2017 season. He had... A couple of great outings with the Cats uh, down the stretch in in 2016. Uh, coming into training camp, looked very good at camp. And as the season progressed this season, you know, through eight games, he hadn't had a touchdown catch. He hadn't had many catches at all, period. You know, 25, I think, was the total. Uh, but a guy who just couldn't make that transition. You know, he shows well in practice. Maybe has a, a good, uh, you know, spurt here or there in a game or two. But consistently can't get the job done. I see the same thing with Zach, uh, with, uh, with uh, Johnny Manziel. The difference is you have a team in the Hamilton Tiger Cats that started 0-8. They've won their last two games after making a quarterback switch from Caleros to Jeremiah Masoli. Now to bring in another guy, never mind that you have Everett Golson, who's, who's the number three and really hasn't done anything and probably shouldn't deserve to do anything this year because you have two other guys who should be ahead of him. But you bring in a Manziel, and you have basically told your starting quarterback in Masoli that despite winning two games, the only two games we've won this season, uh, we're bringing in another guy who is going to supplant you eventually, not right away, and in Zach Caleros, who they are paying more money to than anyone else in the CFL. Uh, Zach, uh, take a step back. We're bringing in this hotshot former NFL guy that we've had on our neck list for three, four, five seasons. Uh, we're going to go with this guy. I think it sends, especially at this time of the year, uh, in the heat of a playoff race, I say with a grin that, uh, you know, after your first two wins of the season, after we finally have had some momentum with this team, we're going to bring in a guy who is so polarizing and so black and white and with no guarantee that he's going to make this team better. I think that sends the complete wrong message. There's one more, and frankly, the biggest, I think, part of this, because we can talk about Johnny Manziel, whether he would succeed or fail as a quarterback all day long. Mm-hmm. 
But what Johnny Manziel, you touched on it a while ago. Um, he had a situation where he had a domestic violence charge that was dropped against him in exchange for some conditions that he had to do. If he comes here, the CFL has said he has to have a, an interview to sort of make sure that he's of right mind in that line, I guess, or whatever. With, with the commissioner, yep. With the commissioner. Uh, this is a guy that brings a lot of baggage, and and he's he's been known as a partier, and he's on and on and on. But let's go back to that first one for just a second, because some people are com- going to be completely fatigued with talking about Art Bryles, who everyone remembers from a couple of weeks ago was that coach right. that the Ticast tried to hire. But in the wake of that, when that was such a public relations flame out for the Ticats and such a smackdown from all corners of North America, does it become more difficult for them to now try to bring in a guy like Johnny Manziel who has, even if it's not a conviction, who has that specter, if you want to call it that, in the background to now say, yeah, we're, we're going to bring that guy here. Does it, does it complicate things? I think it may. It certainly should uh, make them think twice about any move they're going to do, uh, you know, w- with any player. Uh, but I think that the wording that Kent Austin used, who was VP of Football Ops at the time when he said it, and, and still is, who was no longer the head coach, was yes, we've worked him out. Uh, we have him on our leg le- on our negotiation list, and uh, we're not interested at this point in time. And I think. Knowing that they were, I think, 0-8 or 1-8 at the time, knowing that he was not going to improve the team instantly. I mean, he's going he's gonna to need some time uh, when they practice and, and, you know, as the season progresses. But I think at that time, he knew that in light of what happened with the Art Riles fiasco, that they shouldn't bring him up here at this point in time. Yes, he has a lot, a lot of baggage. They have to be wary of that. But I think as time moves on, uh, I think fans will be more accepting of him coming uh, to the CFL and to the Hamilton Tiger Cats, uh, as opposed to Art Bryles, there's no question in my mind. Well, and if they do bring him here, if they end up signing him, if you know, if 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 there's a trillion ifs in this thing, but if they do, I would suggest the one thing beyond even that, and and that I shouldn't say beyond that because that's a serious issue. Anytime you're talking about those things, but they had better hope. They have to hope that if they bring him up, he doesn't three, four, five games into his tenure here, turn into a complete mess in the locker room, become a distraction, become the guy that then you're saying, oh man, why did we do that? That's that to me, leaving aside the social stuff and the fan stuff from a football side. And can you know that? Can you know that before you bring him up? Well, you can't guarantee it, number one. Uh, I would think that would be an utter disaster for the Ticats. But I think... Even more so, I think it would be more damaging to Johnny Manziel. Because let's face it, he wants to play football, but he wants to play football in the NFL. And to do that at this point, knowing that there isn't an NFL GM right now uh, or an owner who has any appetite to bring a Johnny Manziel into the fold, knowing what has happened, his history, the baggage, uh, how he played in Cleveland, he wants to come to the CFL. He wants to get that uh, more recent game film in front of the eyes of those NFL general managers. So uh, sign as soon as you can, start playing as soon as you can with the Ticats, if that is uh, you know the course that both sides are going to take. Get that game film on YouTube into the hands of those NFL GMs and start that process. That, that's really the only reason we're talking about Johnny Manziel right now, because the Ticats have had him on their neck list for a few seasons now, but it's the fact that he's not in the NFL, and this is the only way he's going to get back. I will point out, as I let you go, you talked about how he was with the Cleveland Browns and did not 
make them a winner. Uh, I read earlier this week that the Cleveland Indians, who are on a 21-game win streak, they're tied tonight as we speak, um, they have won more games on this win streak than the Browns have won in the past five seasons. Wow. So Johnny Manziel clearly did not solve all of that team's problems. That is an incredible statistic. (laughs) Rick Zamperin, uh, you will be able to hear Rick. You will be able to communicate with Rick tomorrow night on the fifth quarter after the game, uh, preferably sober, but, you know, we, we know there are exceptions. There have been few instances <laughs> in the last few seasons where I have uh, been speaking with someone who is, uh, let's say, inebriated. I think, I think there was certainly one on Labor Day. But I, think that, I think you're correct. There, were a few, there, were, there have been some not happy people this year, but yeah. by and large they have been sober not happy people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to encourage people to call in after downing a six-pack, but, it, you know, you do have some entertaining shows. People really sh- should listen to the fifth quarter if they want some high entertainment value on a Friday, Saturday, whatever night, this week, Friday. Uh, Rick Zamperin, be listening for him tomorrow after the game. Uh, we appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for this, Scott. Take care. Fifth quarter tomorrow night after the game. Always entertaining. I I, I hate to say this because I don't want to sound like we're cheering for the Ticats to lose. We're not, but... Often the fifth quarter is more lively after a loss. I'm just saying. It's not that we're cheering for them to lose. But boy, when they were 0-7, after that 60-1 to loss to Calgary, oh man, the fifth quarter was high entertainment. We don't want to see that again. I'm not talking, but tomorrow night. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.